Welcome to the third episode of the Evolve Podcast. Before we get started, I want to apologize to you, our listeners, and to our guest, John Dupree. You'll notice in this episode, we're still dealing with technical issues as we evolve and grow in this podcasting thing. A little bit of reverberation and echoing here and there that hopefully will get fixed here very soon. There's a great conversation going on today with John, a 35-year veteran in major news media. We talked a little bit about John's personal growth, how the pandemic affected him and caused him to change his career in a completely different way. We also talk about how a news anchor of over 35 years in major media and also someone who worked for Fox News saw the evolution of media in the United States. John gives us some great insight in how to sift through the noise of the day and make sure that your news is not biased and that you're getting the information that you need to make the decisions that are going to be best for you. Once again, thanks for listening to the Evolve Podcast. I hope you stick with us as we work through these technical issues and see the message that John has brought to us today. It's a very powerful one, and I think one that can be great for everyone. So without further ado, here's episode three of the Evolve Podcast with John Dupree. You know, John, what what is it right now that's inspiring you? Do you have music? Do you have art? Or is there a person in your life that's inspiring you? Uh, her name is Moo. If you're going to ask me about people, her All name right. is Moo, right. as in the cow. Her words, not mine. Poon. <laughs> Poon, as in Tane. Her words, not mine. Wow. I know. Moo Poo. <laughs> she is a, uh, a, a Chinese immigrant who uh, grew up in New York and moved to San Diego to go to work for the United States Navy uh, as, a, as a mechanical engineer. Uh, an honors graduate from Carnegie Mellon University, uh, the holder of a master's degree in engineering, and the cutest, smartest, funnest, um, most loving, most generous, happiest person I have ever met in all my 62 years on this earth. Um, I can tell you without uh, equivocation and without hesitation, she is... um, the best thing that's going on in my life right now in terms of my own personal evolution necessity is the mother of invention and um and and also reinvention as it were uh it was last april april of of 2020 that uh i lost all my work um having recently left abc4 in my last tv news anchoring job and ventured into public relations and marketing to um, sort of raise the ceiling of my uh, income earning potential. Um, It wasn't long before all of our clients closed up shop and went away because of this thing called COVID. And I had to reinvent myself. So I, um, within 24 hours, made the transformation, became a freelance writer in video production uh, supervisor and producer. And um, within a matter of weeks, I uh, working from my home office, which is my uh, little apartment here in South Jordan, Utah, realized that um, I was going to go crazy if I didn't figure out a way to be all right, to be comfortable in my own skin, in my own space, and in the here and now. 
present, mm. focused, and comfortable. I, um, I found meditation and mindfulness practices at, at, during the month of April of last year. And I, uh, I put them to, I put them to work and it's pretty uh, amazing to think about. So, so 62 years old yeah, and you started meditation. So we're talking guys to John Dupree, uh, a veteran of over 35 years in the broadcasting industry. Uh, you know, John is a veteran journalist. Uh, as he says, he's fought the good fight for truth and justice in the battlefield, such as Salt Lake city, Phoenix, Boston, and now back in Salt Lake city. Um, and John, you, you've written a book. Um, how long ago did you write this book? It was published in the year 2000. So 20 years yeah. ago. Um, so the parodical father, the true story of tragedy, survival and reconciliation in an American family. And, uh, you know, I think Miles and I both have read through some of this. So we want to talk about that. But John, we're really grateful to have you on the show. Casey and Steve, I want you to take a good look at John and I because this is what 62 looks like. Right on. Yeah, so well, I, was, I was really worried until I saw John. So I'm thinking there's hope. So. <laughs> well, John, so years ago, I, I had a friend of mine. He's actually going to be a guest on the podcast here soon yeah. uh, that told me, Steve, you've got a face for radio. And then he helped me get into radio. John is the opposite of that. Where John's got a face yeah. for television. And that's why he spent yeah. the fast. 35 years in television. <laughs> uh, but, John, we're really excited to have you on the podcast. Today. Thank you. you, know, the thank you. I'm podcast, excited to be with you, gentlemen. Yeah, thank yeah. you. We The Evolve podcast is really focused on, um, number one, we want to have a great time. And then, number two, yeah. if we want to tell stories that hopefully help people to evolve in their personal life, uh, to, to discuss the ideas of what does that evolution look like uh, through our choices, but also how do we uh, – how do we address the challenges in life? And John, I think you brought this up a little bit uh, earlier as we were going through the pre-show that you had a you had a change like many of us in 2020 with this thing called COVID. And in 24 hours, things changed and you picked up meditation in 2020, but you also started your company. How did you get into meditation and how did this uh, pandemic lead you towards that space? Um my physical space was closing in on me and I was beginning to feel more and more uh, closed in claustrophobic. Maybe I've always thought, I've always thought that I suffer from claustrophobia, uh, which is a, a, a sort of a loosely defined condition or uh, sensation in, uh, in the field of psychology. I've discovered um, it was springtime and I found myself spending more time out on the balcony than inside. And I also found myself uh, dealing with stress, the likes of with the likes of which I had not had to deal with in a long, long time. Remember, I'm a guy who just came off 35 years in television news, uh, working also um, for five years at the network level, and, uh, you know, beating six deadlines a day, every single day, living at the end of a pager, when we had them and had to strap them to our belts and carry them around with us everywhere we went. On Miles the still carries pagers, so he knows what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, uh, but I had never encountered stress, the likes of which I encountered in April of 2020. Not knowing if I was going to be able to pay the rent in May, then June, then July. 
and with nothing to um, to fall back on except my own resources, my wits, my determination, my ingenuity, my imagination, and uh, you know, personal and professional uh, associations, relationships, and contacts that I had made over the years, um, venturing into uh, an entrepreneurial endeavor, um, the likes of which I had never uh, attempted before, but had to uh, be successful at if I was going to put food on the table. Um, yeah, um, I needed to find a way to deal with the stress, to find to to lower my you know my heart rate and my blood pressure and to keep from going claustrophobically crazy working in this home office all day long every day exercise was my first outlet it always has been that's why and how you and i met steve when i right. became a member of the health club that you were the general manager over and um and, and um, you might remember that you saw me every single day of the week for sometimes know, twice a day, all the years that I was, uh, you know, a member there. Um, but that, you know, that was, uh, you know, not available to me when all of the health clubs and the fitness centers and the gyms, including, you know, the fitness center at the apartment complex where I live closed. I had nothing uh, by way of an outlet, uh, dropped an app and started listening to people talking me through sort of a meditative process, found a guy who spoke my language and um, didn't try to pose as some Hindu mystic, but who spoke my language and told me, look, I know how it is. And, uh, and here's how you can deal with it. And, um, you know, my five minute meditative practice at, um, you know, eight o'clock every morning turned into a one hour meditative practice at five o'clock in the morning, every morning. I, uh, I found a book called The 5 a.m. Club by um, a guy named Robin Sharma, New York Times number one bestseller. Um, and I, um, I took the challenge and I joined the so-called 5 a.m. Club. Uh, we're up at 5 a.m. every day, and I spend the first two hours of every day working on my physical, my emotional, my intellectual, and my spiritual self. Talk about reinventing myself. From the inside out, Steve, uh, this reinvention is real. You know, and it's interesting to me, John, so you talk about the stress, and I think you and I are a lot alike in this type A personality, let's go, go, go. We want the next challenge. We want the next thing. Give me the next mountain to climb. I don't care if you've cut my legs off. I'm going to climb it on my hands, right? And I think for a lot of people, what they found is if they are wired that way, mm -hmm. taking the rug out from underneath them and saying, you've got to sit home is one of the most stressful most things stressful. Because, because now, now you're forced to to address things that maybe have been sitting inside of you that you haven't addressed before. And so like you, I actually found the same uh, path. I'd, I'd experimented with meditation for several years, but I got to the point where I realized that it during this quarantine and during this pandemic, I needed to do it every day. And so I called a friend of mine that I knew was doing mm -hmm. it every day. And I said, Hey, 
I need an accountability partner. Can you just commit to me that I, when I'm done, I'm going to text you that I finished and you do the same. And if you finish first or I finish first, whatever it is, let's do that so that I can stay accountable to this meditation. And it was an amazing process over the 30, 60, 90 days. And like you, it was, you know, probably 8 a.m. to start out, 9 a.m. to start out. And then it just kept getting pushed back and pushed back to seven and six. Now that meditation practice starts at 4.50 in the morning because I need to be done with my meditation before my daughter comes upstairs to go to her dance. You mentioned that there are, was a guy that really spoke to you. What was it that about this person that made you want to get into meditation and and feel like that was the thing for you? Well, he spoke my language. In other words, he said, hey, uh, you know, I almost died a couple of times on a couple of surfing trips to Mexico. Uh, You know, I got arrested a few times in my 20s because uh, my buddies and I got involved in, you know, things that we shouldn't have. I lived a dangerous, foolhardy, and reckless life. And, uh, you know, a few brushes with death caused me to reflect and internalize and introspect. And I got into meditation, he said, and he began to study it. In India, he uh, uh, studied under some of the masters and became a best-selling author in his own right, Canadian guy who I could relate to, um, unlike many of the other sort of mystics out there who are, you know, uh, performing their their act and, um, and 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 posing as meditative guides. I, um, you know, he wasn't uh, religious in any way. He wasn't. Um, a spiritualist in any way, and he didn't attempt to be mystical in any way. He spoke, um, you know, my language, and I could relate to him, I could connect to him, and I could take what he had discovered and put it into practice in my own life. He taught me how to be okay, present in the moment. I need to also add that I'm a voracious reader, and I began reading about the neuroscience behind meditation and how our brains are wired such that the first thing in the morning when we wake up, the rear part of our brain, which t- which is 90% of our thinking, is in total control because we've been asleep for eight to who knows how many hours, and we are literally living in the past when we wake up in the morning. That's where most of our brain lives, and that's what most of our thinking is occupied by, the memories that have been stored in the back of our brain. We have to consciously focus on using the front part of our brain, the small 10% that brings us into the present moment and allows us and enables us to look forward to the future. This cat told me about how it's entirely possible to sit still, be quiet, be present in the now, and allow all those other thoughts that have traditionally in my life dogged me, tortured me, completely occupied my conscious thought to pass right by. Don't try to fight them. Don't try to push them away. 
let them pass right through your conscious thought and say, oh, okay, is that true? No. Is that true? No. Is that true? No. The more you do it, the better able you are to do it for longer periods of time. And as you teach yourself to focus for that hour of meditation and relaxation in the morning, you're also teaching yourself to focus on your task, your job, your work, your creativity, and your imagination for the rest of the day. I'm not saying I'm even close, let alone there, but um, I'm making progress. Let me ask you, um, have you had the experience of, and this is one of the things that I've gone through with meditation is, um, I'll use the metaphor of doors, because when I first started, there were these thresholds, and I would always be, for a little while, afraid to go through each threshold. I would literally, like, all of a sudden, I felt like I was going to move to another level, and I would literally panic and, and yeah. pull out the meditation. Yeah. I've been there. And then I've I would go, I'd go back in yeah. time and yeah. time again, and each time you start to allow yourself to relax to go deeper into the meditation and not be frightened to go through these doors. Did you have that experience? I can so closely so relate, close to relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. I've always I've been always We has to be in total control and command of the moment, the environment, the situation, and the people in the situation. And excuse me. For me, it's been an exercise in letting go. I don't know if you have had a similar experience, but I have. Each time I try my I'm about to I'm about to reach a higher reach a higher yeah maybe yeah maybe I pull back pull back right yep okay yep. okay and that's a, you just keep practicing till you walk through that threshold you know sometimes it yeah. would hit in five minutes and it would take say maybe four my five more sessions. To, yeah. to say, all right, let yeah. me allow myself to go through that. And then you'll go through it, and then it gets deeper. But there's a sense, there's almost this kind of sense of, I don't know, existential doom of walking through that level. Losing control. And the whole process. The whole process. Letting go. Letting go. And, and, and letting go of, of your false notion that you are in control <laughs> yeah and i think that's that's such a big piece and i think as we think about 2020 so many of us thought that we were in control and then all of a sudden all of our control got taken away um you know mark manson in his book the subtle art of not giving a uh you know what i have read it yeah talks about it all too often we give too many fucks but he says the opposites are what are key in life. So as soon as I admit that I'm not in control, I actually have a greater sense of control in my life. As yeah. soon as I say that I have made a mistake or as soon as I call myself out on all this shit, then I, then, then I suddenly have this control. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think that as the control go, go, go type personality that was something that was fascinating to me. And I've always prided myself on being somebody that was very real and raw with my perspective on life. 
But when I adopted more of that, and it actually took meditation, it took that giving. You know, it's it's funny, John. You talk about that idea of sitting there. Yeah. And years ago, I studied with one of the founders of the Zen Center here in Salt Lake City, and he taught me what they call zazen, seated meditation. And he said, so think about it like this, that when you're meditating, you're going to have all of these thoughts that are going to go through your mind. Imagine them like that they are a horse running through the scene of your mind. If you want to jump on the horse, if the horse says, oh, I forgot to add milk to the list of groceries, you can jump on that horse. Or you can just let that horse run by and at some point it's going to come back to you. But what happened through meditation for me was that I started to observe. I became that, as he taught me, the conscious observer, even more so Love that. to see where my thoughts were, to see, do I really believe what is happening inside of my brain? And I can honestly say at certain times I would say, no, I don't. Yes, I do. Okay. You know what, Steve, you're full of shit right there. I'm calling myself out on it. I'm writing it down. So I'm documenting it and memorializing it. And then I can start to take the steps forward. So it's an interesting process. As soon as we start to recognize where the negative is, the positive starts to become more abundant in our lives. Doesn't it though? And as we, yeah, it's totally counterintuitive to how we've trained ourselves to think and act in our universe. But the better able we are to let go and relinquish this perception of control, the more control we actually have over ourselves, our thoughts, and our behavior. And, you know, I've studied a lot the work of uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman, um, at the Huberman uh, Laboratories at Stanford University. He's a neuroscientist who talks about the science behind being able to think your way into a meditative state. He studies how our brains actually grow connections between you know, one part of the brain and another part of the brain and like, like muscles in a gym, um, build the ability to and and strengthen the ability to uh, focus on what we want and need to focus on, rather than allowing ourselves to be distracted by by all the other negative. All the other negative permeates permeates our. Yeah, it's almost as if you get to see your mind is your mind literally is a runaway train. And as a runaway train, it has some great things in it, and it has a lot of garbage and trash in it. Mm. And meditation allows you to almost sift through what the garbage is and what the great stuff is. Um, And then if you ever get to the point where you can actually go without thought, in that gap, that kind of darkness, you start to see, what would I like to consciously put in this runaway train so you can build thoughts you can almost get rid of thoughts but you really start to see and i I don't want to use the word control because again that that's we have no control over that but we get to see what we can implement or take out with this runaway train yeah yeah 
excellent, excellent. John, you mentioned the other day that once you retired from the news, you became a better writer. Why is that? Once I retired from television news, um, you know, I opened up a, um, a limitless array of subject matter on which I, I can write. Um, writing, writing, you know, scripts for a television newscast was pretty limited. You know, I'm limited to a certain uh, subject matter. Um, today, I'm working on a memoir as a ghostwriter for a client, client who um, happens to be a hugely successful business executive here in Utah who built a company which she just sold for about $200 million and now wants to explore how it is that she got here after suffering through a childhood during which she was raped systematically and repeatedly by her father and people to whom he sold her at least 130 times. Wow. She managed to survive a harrowing childhood and um, invent herself in a way that allowed her to be enormously successful in business. And now she wants to try to, she wants to tell her story and, and try to reach out to others who are uh, victims of sex slavery, of child rape and uh, incest and um, abuse of any and all kinds. And she wants to uh, start an institute and um, devote the rest of her life to helping people who um, probably think they have nowhere to go. So I have uh, the good fortune of being able to write about things like that rather than what a politician might've said today or a drive-by shooting on the West side or uh, what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. What, what an expansive process. I mean, to be able to go through and listen to somebody and hear their story and be involved in that, I can only imagine how that would expand your perspective and your ability uh, to be able to take that in and then express it as the ghostwriter. Yeah, that's what an amazing experience. Well, it's the most challenging writing assignment I've ever had. But I can it's imagine. Also, uh, it's also the most... Uh, it's also one of the best learning experiences I've had. So, you know, you, you also brought up writing your own pieces back when you were uh, reporting the news. I, there, there's a topic I'd like to, to touch base on because you, you, you spent over 35 years, John, in, uh, you know, popular media, not social media, popular media, major media. And over the past four years, I would say at least, um, popular media and major media has been under attack at the highest levels. You know, words like fake news have been thrown around and oftentimes you get a chance to write some of those things, but then there are things that you don't write. And I know you talk about that in your book of an experience that you had where you read something that triggered you and made you think of an experience with your father. Yeah. What For, for you, John, what has it been like over the last, um, four or five years to watch your industry be under attack as it's been. I'd love to get your perspective on it. I worked for five years as a senior correspondent for Fox News Network. I was instructed shortly after I arrived at the Los Angeles Bureau in uh, 2000, um, in 1998, that this new upstart uh, news network was created and built 
to serve a particular constituency and that our task, our assignment and our mission statement was not necessarily the pursuit of truth, was not necessarily the pursuit of justice, was not necessarily fact-based, but that our mission statement was to reiterate and support the preconceived notions of our core constituency who were identified to us as white, middle class, upper class, upper class Republican, Republican men. Our assignment was to tell them what they wanted to hear. And we were enormously successful at it. And the ratings proved it. And in my third year at Fox News Channel, we passed CNN in the dailies. The there were enough people who felt disenfranchised, who felt like the traditional mainstream news media had not served their interests, that when they saw Fox News Channel, they tuned in and they stayed with it all day long, pushing the ratings up from sign on to sign off past CNN. Hmm. At the end of my fifth year, the end of my first contract with Fox News Channel, I resigned and I left. It was the highest paying job I ever had. It was what I had was a network correspondent position. It was the pinnacle of achievement, achievement in my profession. And I walked away from it because it was not journalism. It was political propagandism. I was invited to participate in a documentary produced out of Los Angeles that was entitled Outfoxed, Rupert Murdoch's War on Journalism, uh, declined. I was asked a second time a few months later, and I was told that Walter Cronkite had been interviewed for the documentary, so I accepted the invitation. And um, I'd recommend that documentary, which was produced and, and distributed in the year 2003 to anybody and everybody, because it was a portent of things to come. It was an early warning a cautionary tale that this so-called news network had gained popularity and a tremendous amount of influence in the public debate. We've all, seen, we've all seen since how Fox News Channel has been used to promulgate propaganda mm. and to obscure and even prevent people from finding true reporting, true journalism. And so I, uh, I didn't know when, I just knew that it was, it was, it was gonna come down to this. And a lot of my colleagues in journalism have been uh, dreading for years that it would come down to this someday, that this constituency would find its voice, would find its leader, and through the process of uh, you know, the two-party electoral system would uh, find a way to put somebody in a position of power who would um, uh, act out their, their prejudices, their uh, racism, their uh, bigotry. Did you get a chance to look at the um, Stelter book, um, Brian Stelter's book? He wrote a book called Hoax. It was about Fox News. No, I haven't seen it. Yeah, it was, it was a, a really, it was an interesting read um, because it just, it talked about actually 
the evolution of Fox towards this type of journalism. And then I just watched the other day Shep Smith's interview about why he left Fox. <clears throat> and you know, um, I, this I, is the stories. Yeah. It's interesting. So, John, you know, there there was a turning point, right? And I think that, uh, like you're talking about, we we started to see that with Fox News. And I think that we've seen a lot of the divisiveness and a lot of division in the different uh, yeah. uh, networks. And it's almost like each one has to take a side now at this point. Right. And well, you mentioned Cronkite. And obviously, I'm I'm too young to have watched Cronkite in his, you, you know, when he was actually on, but I've seen old footage. Reporting back then seemed to be, at least from my perspective, factual. And nowadays, there is so much of a slant. It doesn't matter what you turn on, left, no. right, whatever. There is a slant to a significant amount of reporting that's out there. At a certain point, and I, I think your perspective is clear, and I think your observation is keen. At a certain point, the major news media in America had uh, a reckoning to deal with. And that yeah. reckoning was Fox News Channel. And that reckoning was its popularity and its commercial success. CNN had to respond. And uh, to the disappointment of so many of us, it responded by changing its editorial mission statement and narrow casting by, by uh, uh, soliciting a certain demographic rather than being the news network of record. Which is, I think, what I experienced as a child growing up and, and what, starting to watch, sure. I, I shouldn't say a child, but as a young adult, starting to watch CNN when it, uh, it came on. Yeah. And, and there was a great deal of respect there. Now yeah. I turn it on and I think, eh, okay, I can see which way you're learning and I have to look through that. That coupled with the, you know, the advent and proliferation of social media uh, yeah. on the on the internet have created a dynamic whereby there's no such thing as a newscast of record anymore. There's no, no such thing as a newscaster of record or a newspaper of record. There's no mm -hmm. such thing as the consumption of news and information by appointment anymore. It has been replaced by the consumption of news and information on demand. Everybody walks around with these devices now and everybody has total access to any and every form of information from any source that they want. So what has happened? Have you guys seen the documentary called The Social Dilemma? It's on Netflix. I saw that. Yeah, I, I, I've heard I, of it. I, I haven't watched it. I watched it, it. I watched it about six months ago and I was enthralled. The people who built who wrote the code, who built the algorithms that run these social media platforms mm -hmm. and our search engines, Google and Yahoo and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. They were all brought into this documentary and asked the pivotal question, the fundamental question, what now? Well, what right. now is they have to attempt to undo what it is they unintentionally did Mm -hmm. when they built these platforms that were built to be profit centers, centers but which have but, turned into thought control machines. One of the 
sort of anecdotal pieces of evidence that they gave us was you can be a Democrat who lives in Eugene, Oregon, and you can Google search the words climate control, climate change. And what you'll get back is your top 10, you know, um, your top 10 search results will say it's the end of the world. Uh, we've depleted our ozone. We've contaminated the earth. You could be a Republican who lives in Plano, Texas, and you could Google search the same two words and your top 10 results will say it's a hoax, it's a liberal conspiracy theory, it's not, it's not real science. Yeah. And so we wonder why so we have so many friends who say there's no pandemic. It's all a liberal conspiracy theory. It's yeah. because yeah. their news feeds are telling them that. Because news feeds are giving them more of what they've already searched and told their algorithms on their social media platforms what they want, what they believe, what they prefer, what their biases are, and what their prejudices are. So you bring up an interesting point, John. This is something that that uh, the three of us have talked about before, and I was I was sharing with Miles and Casey recently. Um, so my daughter and I had a conversation uh, recently, and she was talking about the difference between the left and the right and how uh, they each feel about her college education, how she pays for her college education. And she says, well, the right wants me to pay for it. The left would just pay for it. And I said, OK, well, let's hit the pause button here. This is not a right or left concept. OK, your dad has done a lot of study and a lot of research and has been through a lot of economic courses in his life. And let me talk, teach you about the economics. So, so the politics aside, and let's talk about the economics of you getting an education, okay? And at the end of this conversation, and she's a very intelligent uh, uh, young lady, 21 years old, uh, studying uh, mechanical engineering. She is a far better person than I am, far smarter than I am. She takes after her mother, obviously. But I said, Beth, I, I'm challenging you to go take an economics course because you're turning something like education into a political debate based on something that I think you're reading in social media. And I've now now I haven't, you know, in all fairness, I have not read the or watched the documentary, but I've heard the premise of it. And I've read several things about how these algorithms work, that the challenge that we run into today is these algorithms will continue to feed us in this echo chamber of what we search. The funny thing is I look up a lot of things for the left and I look up a lot of things for the right sure. to mess with those algorithms. And I like to listen and read things on you. both sides. Yeah. And. So my question to you as being a, 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 a true veteran in journalism, and we're talking about this concept of people evolving through their choices or what is thrown at them. And it's part of what's thrown at us now is this algorithm. Because yeah. if I search something, then I'm going to get continually get fed this idea, whatever the idea is that I searched. Journalism has changed. Social media has changed. And we have changed the way that we consume information. From a guy who spent over 35 years in media and has been reporting on what is in the world, What's your advice to people? How do if they determine have, what's going to be right for them? If you refer to fewer than five sources for your news and information, you are what we in the industry refer to as news illiterate. <laughs> Most people have 
one source of information and news which they refer to on a daily or weekly basis. Any fewer than five carefully selected sources of news and information. And among my five are Fox News Channel, because I need to know what the right wing reactionaries are talking about on a daily yep. basis. Yep. NPR and PBS, The Guardian, ABC News, because I have quite a few friends who work there, The Wall Street Journal, which not many people know, is owned by News Corp, which owns yeah. Fox News Channel, owned yeah. by Rupert Murdoch, yeah. who is the king of misinformation dissemination, but has become the most powerful media mogul in the United States to the point where he's gotten a, a president elected and uh, the BBC, a broad spectrum of sources of your news and information will enable you to have a perspective that is clear. And yes, it will begin to reprogram your newsfeed such that your algorithm won't be able to determine where you are politically. <laughs> I love it when I go to California and I'm considered to be uh, a conservative Republican. Then I come back here to Utah and I'm considered <laughs> to be a tree-hugging, tree pot-smoking liberal. <laughs> when people can't figure out where I am politically or Perfect. religiously for that matter. I want to recommend to everybody that the next thing you word search is, is a thing called the News Literacy Project. It's a crowdfunded private nonprofit organization which is devoted to teaching news and information literacy to the American public. Replacing all of these corporate news organizations are a wave of crowdfunding news agencies which are dedicated to the premise that journalism still matters. And they're beholden to no one. The, the very nature of their funding allows them to be completely politically and culturally unbiased. Yeah, so I tell, all my, I tell all my friends, um, search out, go onto YouTube, put in something conservative, a conservative news source, put in a liberal source, put in something like ask a porn star, get some recipes, um, find as many different topics that are diametrically opposed to each other, I, search them out and create- just say ask a porn star? So there was one day, and there was one day, I was literally- Casey's over here deleting his history on his computer. I was literally- There was a day I literally said, I'm going to fuck with YouTube. And I just put in as many things as possible. And something popped up and said, ask a porn star. It was this thing where they ask porn stars questions. But I put that in. I put in recipes, cookbooks, different types of artists. Um, I looked up quantum physics. I, I looked up the Schrodinger principle. I looked up a wide, crazy array of things because that's how you screw with their algorithm. Did you ever get a... Um uh, a quantum physical uh, explanation for how to uh, bake a meatloaf from a porn star? 
probably what the best comment we've had on the podcast so far. <laughs> the algorithm is, is, algorithm is probably trying to figure that out right now. And food and thought in the same sentence. That's amazing. Uh, hey, John, I, I've just been fascinated by uh, hearing you speak. And um, I, I typically uh, have a lot to say, but I, I'm so uh, appreciative of your time and coming on here. And, 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 and it's my pleasure. And my um, abilities to think better and to see life in more directions. And the question I want to ask you is, what could you share a couple, one or two things that have been a very uh, pivotal um, a hinge point in your life of your of the personal evolution of John Dupree, not not John Dupree, the the, the news anchor, not John Dupree, the fitness guru or or the meditation guru or whatever you guru else, but just the raw hardcore, really cool things that John Dupree can look back in his life and say, you know what, because of this, this became this. Well, uh, I may I may look like. Uh... You know, an, an aging uh, television newscaster. Um, <laughs> um, it's just because you grew the beard out, John. That's all. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, looks good. I think you look great. Uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I've gotten I've gotten some modeling gigs since I grew the beard out, by the way. Hey, there you go. They'll pay you like a thousand bucks to just stand there. Miles did too, <laughs> but it was on the Ask a Porn Star site. <laughs> Wow. Hey, you know what? You take the money where you can, baby. That's right. That's right. I, I was 14 when, uh, when I woke up on a Saturday morning and uh, walked into the kitchen to pour a bowl of Cheerios and, and pour powdered milk over it. Oh, yeah. I hated the aftertaste that powdered milk left in my throat and on the back of my tongue because mm. it tasted like poverty. But it was all we had because, as my mother informed me that morning, my father, who was my champion, my hero, had left. And we didn't know where he went. And we didn't hear from him. And he didn't send money. So that day, I had to make a decision. And God bless him, my two brothers made a different decision for themselves but my decision was i'm not going to let it stop me i'm not going to let it prevent me from chasing my dreams my ambitions and my aspirations and i'm going to reinvent myself and i'm going to make something of my life i was 14 i didn't know what i was doing i didn't know that i was projecting the rest of my life. I didn't know that I was making a decision that would guide me and inform me and motivate me for the rest of my life. I just knew that the alternative was misery and poverty and more powdered milk. And I refused to accept that fate. And I decided that I would have a home of my own and a family of my own and I would be a better dad than the one who left us penniless and destitute. And that my children would never know 
that disappointment. So that was the first sort of turning point for me to answer your question. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't really um, in a position to make an informed decision. I just made the decision based on whatever instincts I had at the time. And, um, you know, the alternative to making something of my life, which was successful, was failure. And that was not an option for that little boy. Everything has grown out of that. And I've, you know, reiterated the decision many times. In 2006, um, I experienced divorce. And um, the sense of failure was stunning and shattering so i had to make the decision again and i decided to leave my career in television news and move from arizona, arizona to and take a job take a job operator in the back of a home depot store in american fork utah for a year so that i could take care of job number one which was be a dad to my three teenage children um I followed your uh, social media posts, Steve, and I know that you are uh, very much a devoted father who can relate to that. And, and, and so I guess, you know, it comes down to the decision that a person makes about what they want their life to look like and how they choose to live it. Yeah. That's the best yeah, I, I can do to try to you know, answer and, that and and you see the energy, energy, but but it's interesting. It's interesting. Those, those little thoughts, choices, and and desires that push you to limit to places that you. If you look back, think about that fourteen-year-old kid with the powdered milk on the back of your throat, and I had, I know what you're talking about. I saw you and, now. And, and, uh, it's amazing to think those thoughts and that energy that you produced that day, now you're sitting here and you can look back on this personal evolution, career that you're proud of, the most important thing you're proud of, and I appreciate you mentioning it, is the, the opportunity and the blessing to be a father. There you go. Because all, all, all four of us are. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's nothing, you know, that... I feel any four of us would do to not help our children. Right. And, and to have that perspective, no matter what outward accolations, financial or whatever comes your way at the end of the day, where are your thoughts? Where, where's your heart? It's with your kids. Right. What are they doing? Where are they at? What, what do they got going on? And I, I, I just, I love that. I love that story. I love your, uh, it's, I really, I really appreciate you sharing that. I really do. Yeah, and I think uh, for 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 all of us that are fathers or parents, you know, that is the most impactful thing. And I think, you know, John, we were talking the other night, and we we got into talking about the transition of power in the United States and going from one president to the uh, to the next. And Joe Rogan made a comment in one of his comedy specials where he said, "Look, it, it, anybody can can become the president and screw it up as much as anybody else because nobody can do that job right." And I think, <laughs> way, as a father, it's the same thing. It is, isn't it? We, 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 anybody can be a father, and we're all going to screw it up. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to um, do our best and let our kids down at certain points. 
but it's interesting to me. And I think Miles and I were talking about this the other day when we were talking about art and creation of music and, and visual art that oftentimes in life, it's the negative space. It's the pauses between the music that bring the music. It's the, it's what's behind the thing that you're looking at that creates that thing. And I think John, when you talk about this idea that you went through hardship, you saw what you didn't want in life that created a picture for what you were going to create in life. And that's amazing to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I honor that. And I, be, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful you shared that story with us and with our audience today that through that void, through that gap, you said to yourself, I'm not going to create that. And that doesn't mean that we're always going to do it perfect. Right. We right. just know what we don't want, which means now we got to get to work and create what, well, what the hell do we want? Yeah, man. And how do we create that? Yeah. And we're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. And that's uh, that's that's a, that's, a, that's a beautiful piece there. And now you're a grandfather. Yeah, I, I, I should uh, practice full disclosure. Sure. I bought the naming rights to grandchild number one. It's um, <laughs> okay. a product of in vitro fertilization, and that's expensive. And I was called upon to contribute to that cause. And so... Um, it was uh it was an honor but i i know what's up <laughs> <laughs> well john it's 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 fascinating to hear from you and your personal story and your evolution uh not only in your own life but in uh in this industry that has evolved um if it's okay with you i i've got to tell you now like you i am a reader and I, and I'm a reader and I'm a listener at this point. But a few years ago, I started traveling a lot with my work. I shifted uh, to traveling and consulting with Lifetime Fitness, and uh, and so reading, you know, was not as much of an option as I was driving from the airport uh, to my new location. So I started picking up a lot of Audible books, but I I still read quite a bit. And I've got to tell you, I've a lot of I've read a lot of great books. And I think that the way a book starts is an extremely important part of how good that book is. And I got to be honest with you, when I started to read your book, I was really hit with this first sentence. I'd like to read it because I think it, it really hit me uh, and I think is important for our readers. So you said the, the honesty in here, I make a living looking into a lens of a television camera and telling people what's happening. It's an odd sort of a job being a news broadcaster. I've never seen that, or I never see the people I talk to except at restaurants and supermarkets when they ask for my autograph. What a beautiful way to describe what you do. What a very honest way. And I think, John, what you have brought to your career, your life, is a sense of authenticity and honesty, which I've always appreciated. And I, and in our conversations over the years, I've always appreciated your authenticity. I'm, I'm a pretty good read on people. I know when they are uh, putting on the show, because sure. you have to do that in news, right? But you're a very authentic person. And I appreciate what you brought to our listeners today with your story and your evolution 
Uh, you, you know, you have uh, really grown and evolved as a person, but you've grown and evolved in your career as well. So, John, for our one or two listeners that are out there, Casey's mom and maybe some girl that Miles met at the bar, <laughs> I, I, um, where can they find you and learn more about what they're doing, or excuse me, what you're doing um, in your life? Well, if anybody wants to uh, go to Amazon and, and grab uh, a copy of The Prodigal Father, they're welcome to it. It's, um, it's sort of the centerpiece of my, uh, my story, I suppose. I'm working on the sequel, which is uh, tentatively entitled Brothers and Keepers. Mm. And it's the story of my brothers. And it begins at our mother's funeral. I'm hoping that it'll come out in 2022. I've got to take care of a couple other projects before I can get to that one. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm working in relative obscurity right now intentionally because, and I'm, I'm completely inactive on social media. So the best I can best do I can. that question, Steve, is to just um, recommend the book to anybody who cares to read it. And um, if, um, like so many other readers, we've been stunned, surprised, and gratified to hear from. If anybody connects with it at any particular level, then, um, you know, find me on LinkedIn and, and, and let's have that conversation because um, we are finding that people connect with my story, which is the story of surviving and thriving after having been abandoned by the most important, most important person in my life and reinventing myself and, and making a life for myself. Um, there are so many people who connect with that. We've been astounded ever since the book came out and we continue to be astounded by uh, the shelf life of this thing. So I would just say, you know, you can go to Amazon, you can look up my name yeah, or you can look up the title and, um, and you'll find it. And, and, you know, we're, we're a few clicks away from anybody and everybody on the face of the planet. Yeah. And that's the parodical father, a true story of tragedy, survival and reconciliation in an American family by John Dupree. Uh, and John, I've got to tell you, I'm not all the way through the book. I, I am a I'm a reader at heart and I'm loving absolutely loving the book so far. Thanks. I wish I would have known about this sooner. I don't know why I didn't. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't, but I, this has now been pushed up to the first book on my list that I'm going to finish. Oh, uh, it's a great book. I'm humbled. Yeah, it, you, you are a great writer. Uh, so I'm excited to see what you're coming up with next. Um, you know, as we grow from two or three followers to five to 10 followers, we'd love to have you back on to have further conversations, but we really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, on one of our initial episodes of the Evolve podcast. It's, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on. You guys are doing it right. I'm really, um, uh, really pleased to be with you. And, uh, and, and I feel like, you know, I, uh, I managed to uh, fake my way through it. All the questions are <laughs> really probing, really. <coughs> and um, I love that you're doing a podcast with a theme, with a purpose and that, uh, and that you know, there's so much intellectual prowess that's that's focused on it. Uh, what an honor to be with you, Steve. I've always uh, looked up to you, man. And um, I managed to uh, I managed to find a girl who's as hot as yours. 
<laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks for being on. And uh, we, we do appreciate the one or two listeners that are listening to us right now. Uh, you, you have been listening to the Evolve podcast, a podcast that we try not to take ourselves too seriously, but we do want to make an, a difference in your life by helping you to evolve and helping you to make uh, choices in your life that are going to evolve. We believe that evolution is a, uh, a conscious choice. It's not about who's the strongest that are going to f- survive, but is who is the most adaptable. And so are you adapting to the challenges of life? Uh, so Casey, do you want to talk to everybody about where they can find us and where they can find more about the Evolve podcast? Come follow us at at evolve underscore cast on Instagram. Uh, We would love comments, feedback, challenges, questions, topics, whatever comes to mind from listening to these, uh, these conversations, I think is, is what we're trying to get out of is people to think people to to stretch themselves and and to try to have a little fun. People can't look as good as you, but how do they get close? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Folks, we also, you know, we got gear. If you want to kind of look like us, I'm not wearing any of the gear now. I'm going to get you one here soon. I will pay good money for We got merch. We got merch. <laughs> we got swag, merch. <laughs> Grab our gear. All right, guys. Well, hey, thanks again for uh, joining us on the Evolve podcast. Yeah, John, thanks for joining us. I think, uh, you know, John, you've brought a great story to us. One of the biggest takeaways is that no matter where you start in life, no matter what your uh, challenges are, you make the choice to continue on with your life and to continue to evolve. And there's many evolution points. So if there's one takeaway that I think you get from John's story today, it's that you make a decision at a certain point in life and then you stick with that throughout life. When life throws you some curveballs and you hit some challenges, you've got to recommit, double down, and continue to make that evolution happen. Now it's your turn to get out there and evolve. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Evolve Podcast. I want to thank John Dupree for sticking with us through some of the technical difficulties as we had a great conversation about his life and career. Follow us on Instagram at evolve underscore cast, where you can find out more about the Evolve podcast and pick up some of our great gear to help you to remind yourself to continually evolve and progress in your personal life. Join us next time as we talk to three-time Olympian, pro beach volleyball player, and my good friend, Jake Gibb. We talk about Jake's growth and progression through the Olympics, how he's overcome cancer, and what the next stage of life looks like after retirement from professional sports. That's next time on the Evolve Podcast.